Alrighty. This is one of our first big shifts in plot since Lou got back from Tiernanog. Don't have a lot to say on this one, so let's get right down to it. Previously, on Godacy. The time has come at last. Lou has freed the champions of Nuada from the Fomorian chains, and has joined its greatest healers and smiths in crafting a working silver hand for the former king. Armed with the knowledge that insurrection is in order, Lou now rides to Tara to overthrow the Fomorian sycophant, Brez, to set a course for the final conflict between the Tuatha Dé Danann and the vile Fomorian invaders. Welcome to Godacy, Episode 14, The Stone of Song. The tension was high at Tara, from the village at the bottom of the hill all the way to the palace at its top. Kavita had brought them in a side entrance, and there snuck Lou into the forge, where they hid and rested. The horse and hound were left at the grove at the south. A safe place, Kavita assured him, was a place of druidry. Lou ached. The day since his capture had been hard on him, a constant barrage of traveling across the island, from the far north to the deep south. It was beginning to tire him out, test him physically and mentally. He was not certain the last time he had slept peacefully. Had it been at Dian Sets, or was it Tirnanog, where days and nights flowed into each other? He could remember so little of that time, of what he did there. He knew what he had learned, which was a little bit of everything. But how long had he been there? His memory was hazy, as much from the magic of the place as from the exhaustion that permeated every joint in his body. The heat of the forge did not help at all. The forge still continued to work, powered by apprentices making weapons. Fomorian weapons, he realized. Kavita snored beside him, a small catnap. The signal had not yet been given, though neither truly knew what the signal would even be. Lou took matters into his own hands. Those weapons, who were they for? A rhetorical question. The apprentices were young boys and girls, hardy folk and typically bulky, not awkward thin twigs as he had been. They stopped instantly, uncertain of how to answer. One of the girls spoke up. For Elatha? Lou looked at the finished spears, tips already sealed to the wood of the polearm. He took each one and began breaking them over his knee, throwing each of the tips into the furnace so that they could melt into nothing, wasted material. No more. We do no more favors. Today is the last day any of you work for them. The last one he rose up then reconsidered. He would need it, and there was a poetic justice in it. Today is the day we start fighting again, and remove the heel from our throats. A good sentiment, came a voice from the door, as the ever-tall figure of Medir appeared. He approached his nephew, and they clasped arms. Well met. Has the time come? Angus and Dean said are joining Turian. I've never seen those three so happy to be seen together. The court bard is giving a session, and I believe Turian has let the secret slip. You will want to be there? You look half dead. There was nothing to do but laugh. I would be dead before I miss this, so luckily it's only by half. Lead on. He drew up his hood and followed. Strangely, so did most of the smith apprentices, leaving only Kavita snoring by the fire. The palace of the king was full, people brimming at the door with guards vouching for each and every soul that tried to pass through, checking them for weapons, for intention. Lou carried his spear openly. 
well past the guards that blocked the road from the village. An alarming show. Not even Medir had a weapon. Something that made him restless. Almost smaller in stature and soul. To their people, a weapon was everything. And Brez was depriving them all of weapons. The bard was still singing, his lyre humming with life as he told of some tale of the coming of the Dagda, how his belly hung low, among other things, how foolish he was, but foolishness hides wisdom and truth, too. He knew, of course. The bard knew. Looking around, no one objected to the story. The hall of the king was packed, and as Lou made his way around the crowd adjacent to Medir but losing him, he caught sight of the sour look on Brez's smiling face, the sneer beneath the smile. Bridget sensed something beside him, not terrified but indignant at not knowing. She did not like surprises. Yet she was in for one. Not one interrupted by the Morrigan, not this time. By him. By her father. And her uncle, Ogma, too. And soon the true king would sit beside her. Opposite of Bridget was Ruidan, cheerful, enjoying the song, the deprecation of the Dagda and the knowledge that came with it, how the Fearbulk underestimated him and his knowledge, gave him the land, and he gave their people a true king, not a chief. But the story skipped Nawada by force. The chosen king was Brez in this tale. Lu stood in full sight of the guards. They did not take his spear. They looked him in the eye, for no magic functioned here. He looked back, and they did nothing. Lou waited, and Medir, observing this, stood by him. Fortunately for him, Brez could not see him. The loyalists with guards, near the table, could not see him. Why is he allowing so many people in? Medir shook his head. The king is nervous. You made him nervous. And he wants our people to be put back into complacency. Does he know I'm free? If he does, he's hiding it well. No, he wasn't. Lou could see it. Brez began to bang on the table, a simple hammering that drew attention to him. The crowds there turned quickly, out of fear of not doing so, and silence fell. Bridget seemed to jump at this, not looking at Brez, but at his hands. Friends, children of Danu, share in my feast and welcome to my hall. Lou almost doubled over in laughter, holding his side, for this was no feast. The meager chickens half-picked before any soul got to them, and limp vegetables were hardly worth mentioning. I call you here today, my clan leaders, my loyal vassals, as close to me as my own blood, to remind you of unity, of what we can do together. For we have inherited this land, this well and pleasant land from a people far older than we, who could not properly utilize it. Now we, not farmers, but warriors, do our best. But is our best enough? Never, for we can always strive to improve. Improve our production, our building projects, our loyalty. No one spoke, no one coughed, but no one believed a word. Lou saw it, the rage that permeated off of every soul there. Brez was standing now, in his best finery of red and gold, a cape on his shoulder. Ruidan admired his father, looking up at him. You may recall recently at a banquet presided over by my dear wife, Queen Bridget, that there was a ruffian from beyond, a liar claiming to be the son of Kian, but in truth of Albion, that wicked place. He tricked poor Master Turian into sending his sons to their death, and for all my best messenger birds, I cannot summon them back. Many of you whispered about him. Was he true? Was he real? I am here to assure you, he is not. 
and that he has been dealt with, sent packing like a dog with his tail between his legs. And you were loyal. This I will remember, friends. That this usurper, who would undo the peace we make with our northern neighbors, the fair Fomorians of land and sea, has been dealt with. And we shall not see his like again, will we? Lou shook. Medir grabbed his arm, but he would not hold. Lou recalled his lessons of how to make a spear into a javelin, and as the eyes of the guards turned to him, lighting up, they saw him rear back, adjust his muscles, and throw the spear. It sailed into the hall, dancing every inch it flew, and into the throne of Brez, where his head might have been if he were still sitting there. Ruidan shot up, almost knocking his father over, and Brigid too, though she stood her ground. Brez, now past Ruidan, reached for his blade, before following the trajectory of the spear. As if by magic, the crowd parted, and Lou, now fully announced, stepped forward. Like all your solutions, this problem is not being dealt with. It is exacerbated, Brez McElothan. You do not pick at a festering wound and not expect it to bleed. And with every untrue word out of your mouth, you provide the Sovereign Queens with another reason to ride us off into the sea, to rot at the bottom of the ocean, forever condemned from Tirnanog. Brez smiled, trying to hide his fear. Lou McKeon, or whoever you are, what are you doing here? I was told you would never see the light of day again. I met another kind of light in that dark place you put me in, disloyal Brez. Your father imprisoned me with Nuada, the true king of our people. Brez laughed, stepping off the raised platform. His guards moved past him, flanking him on all sides, but leaving a gap for Lou to see him. His perfect hair seemed to shift, his head now drenched with fresh sweat. Nuada is not whole, son of Kian. His hand was taken by Sring, who now rightly suffers in Conic. I was chose to take his place and I rule in his image. Lu shook his head. You may have been selected, but you stand a mockery of Nuada's intentions. You defy the wisdom the Dagda has given our people since time immemorial. You forego the knowledge Agma writes to us each and every day. Instead, you let them come here. Let them take our youths for their sadistic hungers. Let them take our best and brightest for menial tasks or death. Let them infringe year by year on crops that make us starve. You call this a feast? This is not fit for the dogs of Indic of the Fomorians. It is an insult to your subjects. You eat while others starve. You sleep soundly while men and women worry for their spouses and their children, hungry and exhausted, day in and out. And yet there is another matter. Did the Stone of Fall sing for you, Brez? That knocked the smile off of his face. No one had mentioned it to Lou. No one needed to. He recalled what the stone did. The Stone of Kings. In the presence of a true king seated at Tara, it sang. It had never done so before. Brez found his grin after a moment, his bright eyes shining with rage. A myth perpetuated by an old fool. The stone was metaphorical, and now it rests. Lou butted in, silent as the land is now, free of birdsong and animal cry. There's nothing left here for us under your reign. This promised land is ash and soot the longer you reign, the longer you let the Fomorians run wild upon the land. It ends today, Brez. I name you a false king. By what right? Will you invoke the Phantom Queen and have her fight your fights for you? You have no power here, and you are not recognized by this court. From the throne came the voice of Bridget, defending Lou. 
by the right of... Brez wheeled on his feet and pointed an accusatory finger at his wife. Silence! Your treachery in this is noted and you will burn your own house down. No, let this usurper try, Bridget. I will deal with you later. Brez drew his blade and pointed it at Lou. As for you, what weapon have you? Shall you retrieve that half-made spear of your uncle's? I will not. I do not need it to bring you down, son of Elatha. Brez threw the first attack, slashing long as Lou danced around him, as he had been taught. Another set of slashes kept Lou on his feet, the crowd crying out with each blow, as Lou waited for his moment. When it came, he danced around Brez's arm, grabbing it and pulling the king into a punch that did not land solidly on his stomach. Brez reacted with a headbutt, sending Lou reeling back, directly into a table. Brez was quick to move forward, bringing the blade down where Lou should have been. Lou instead threw himself to the ground, disoriented but moving, until he was standing behind a turning Brez, removing his blade from the table. Lou had underestimated him, assuming Brez had been given everything by his father. Brez was a good warrior, quick and reactive, even in a compromised state. The spear was out of the question. Lou could not reach it now. He had been foolish, arrogant in his haste. Madeira tried to warn him, he realized, to wait. And Brez had been right. He had no power here. He was an outsider still, even now. He had no position in this court. With Brez at his head, or not. Brez came for him again. This time more careful in his jabs and slashes, more calculated. Lou, too, moved carefully, trying to make a circle rather than let the geography of the room dictate his rise and fall. Brez was a canny to this. He switched his stance and made Lou move the other way, between tables. The crowd moved, too, reacting, and moving as they could, no one wanting to miss a fight but everyone terrified to get involved with it. Brez was wise, then. He was winning by wearing Lou down, and Lou was already worn down. When Brez's blade at last found him, it was a small wound, but one that drew blood and multitudes. The crowd cried out for him as the blade came again, another superficial wound along Lou's arm, and a third time. This time, the handle of Brez's blade finding his face, his cheek rocked loudly by the wooden hilt. Lou fell to the ground, his world spinning. He spat blood from his mouth, unable to hold himself up. The attempt to pull himself up garnered a kick in the ribs from Brez, the awful crunch and howling pain letting him know that at least one of them was broken. The Harbinger of Destiny, behold him! Look upon your so-called savior. I hear your whispers, I know your songs, and look where it gets you, my disloyal subjects. I know you plot, I know you resent me, you deserve less than this feast, less than the scraps from my table. Another kick, another set of ribs broken. The bard's lyre strummed. He did not sing, but spoke. He provides not food with haste, he gives no substance to a newborn calf, he grants no shelter for the weary traveler. No poet in his hall is paid. That shall be the ways of Brez MacElathan for all his days, and for that Ireland will know no prosperity. Yet he calls this wealth. A dissonant chord concluded the song. His voice had quivered, fearful. It did not matter. The bard stood tall, drawing Brez's attention. Corpory, mediocre poet that you are, I should have known you came up with that stanza. After I remove your hands and tongue, I shall show you what a real song is. The lament of Lou the Lost, I think. He turned back to Lou, his sword arm raised. 
Bridget screamed out, calling on Brez to stop. Everything faded, a murky image in a pool ruined by the rippling pain. Lou's groan became a new song for Corpri, the bard's song. Yet, when Focus returned, the bard did not play. Where did the song come from? Brez stood there, frozen, his arms resisting the final blow. He looked at his arms, trying to understand why they did not obey him, as the song continued, growing louder. With the harp came a drum, and the voices of the crowd, a hum that almost seemed to be joined by one and all, yet no mouth moved, no throat let air through. Was the room spinning that much, or was this death's embrace? Loose focus turned to the door, where stood three primary figures, a gaggle behind them marching. The bulging shape of the Dagda was unmistakable, as was the round, muscular form of Ogma. These two flanked the central figure, who was altogether familiar but unknown to Lu. He was tall, not as tall as the Dagda, with white hair that shone, wearing what amounted to a gray, ragged clothes, perhaps even a single bag. His left arm was alight, from hand to elbow, as if wrapped in an elaborate, growing ivy. Worn, older, and wiser still, Nuwada seemed more noble now. Brez, straining, tried to move his head, but the song from the harp kept him in order, where he should be trapped while the true king stepped forward. Holding onto Agma's arm, Nuwada moved forward, past Lu and Brez to the throne. No one resisted. Most bowed. The guards, confused, did nothing but stand there, white as stone. Noble children of Danu, I have returned. Nuwada said, his voice strained. He paused for a moment, clearing his throat before beginning again. I see my people are hungry, their faces gaunt, their eyes sad. I see a dirty folk, dirtier than the Firbolg who came before us, dirtier still than the Fomorians who threaten us. I see a well-fed king who betrayed the trust placed in him. Bridget, previously bowing, stood. Nuwada, our people have suffered long since you left the throne. My husband has sold us into bondage, hoards food for himself, denies hospitality to his guests, and consorts with our enemies. He is not fit to be king. Opposite the empty throne, her son Ruidin looked horrified, almost stooping. Nawada smiled and looked past the guards. Then we must replace him, for no king who betrays his people and treats them as slaves has a right to rule. We are a noble folk, and we must act nobly. I asked the armed guards to drop their weapons. Though at first they hesitated, each spear fell to the ground. The guards stepped away from them, making clear one and all their choice. Ruidin shared his father's fearful glance. Bridget saw the silver arm and looked beyond to the people. As the queen of the Tuatha Dé Danann, I condemn the acts of Brez Mechalathan, and by the accord struck with the sovereign queens in whose name we rule over this island, I cast him down as the high king of our people and the Firbolg. The throne sits empty. Now, who will sit upon it? The crowd looked to one another, not having a simple answer. I ask our chief druid, the Dagda, who can we select to be our king? The Dagda stepped forward looking over the crowd. Thank you, Queen Bridget, and a finer queen we could not ask for. You will act as regent during this interregnum. You look as radiant as ever, my fiery daughter. If Bridget blushed, she did not show it. A king must be the noblest among us, a warrior, a poet, a scholar, and a peacemaker. 
eager to make peace but ready for war, fair and just and righteous, but strong and stalwart, willing to maintain our laws even against their own interest. And our king must be whole, elected by our greatest leaders. Without skipping a beat, Turian stepped forward. I name Nuwada Mekekthak as my candidate for the High King of the Tuatha Dé Danann. Dian Set and Angus spoke at once. I second, they said in unison, before glaring at one another. Bridget nodded. A wise choice. He served us well the many years before we ascended to Tara. Yet he has an imperfection. His left hand was removed. She gestured to his arm, which was clearly replaced. You appear to have replaced it with a construct of silver and magic. What makes this different than before, Nuwada of the Silver Hand? Immediately the title seemed to stick. Lou heard the people in the hall repeat it, murmuring in agreement with Bridget. Their laws were clear. Nuwada let go of Ogma, saying something to him softly, and walked, fully upright now, to Brez. The frozen figure's eyes flicked to him, watching every step towards him. The song from the Dagda's harp changed, and Brez, resisting every movement downward, bowed, offering the blade to Nuwada. You have done well preserving the sword for me. I relieve you of it. With his left hand, Nuwada took the blade as presented by Brez, who struggled against the magic, tears leaking from his face as he gave the sword away. Nuwada's hand reacted, slowly at first, and grabbed the sword the audible gasp from the crowd almost as shocking as the light that began to glow from the blade, which turned from a worked gray and silver to a beam of light, almost like a torch in the shape of a blade. My hand is restored, Queen Bridget. I am whole again. Bridget's smile could not be contained. She looked at her son and stepped towards him, putting a hand upon him. I will sit at Tara with you as my acting queen, if you will, Bridget. I am a bachelor, and so I shall remain, but our people still need a queen. You have proven yourself these long seven years, and I mean you and your son no ill will, despite his father. He began to move slowly to the throne, and the crowd watched him. The dagged nearby did not react to Nawada's declarations of bachelorhood. His former wife Bowen had been willingly given, and whatever resentment Nawada had was unspoken. It was then that Lou felt himself being lifted and Mick and Ermid revealed themselves, rubbing bombs on his wounds. Sitting him upon a table, they wrapped his wounds and made him feel more aware of himself, offering him some kind of smelling salt to bring him back to his senses. When he looked up, Nawada was standing beside the throne, not sitting upon it. It is important we remember our customs. It was custom that removed me from the throne, and for that we have suffered but we follow the true word of the Sovereign Queens, and for that, we were right to do so. I have suffered as many as you have. But through the careful dedication of young Lu here, the son of Kian guided by fate on the Morrigan's wings, I am whole again. Yet our customs once again we must follow. I call upon the heads of the great houses of the children of Danu to grant me their approval, speaking for all members of their clans. Only with that will I be a legitimate king. Again, it was Turian who stepped forward. The clan of Turian will see Nuwada seated at Tara. Angus next. The clan of Angus and all souls at Runaboyne will see Nuwada of the Silver Hand seated once again. Then came Dian Set and a whole host of other clans from across Ireland. 
Medir, as the representative of the old war god Nemed, voted for his parents, and dozens more. Soon the whole of the hall was elated, cheering after each accolade placed upon Nawada. Finally, the Dagda spoke. The druids of this land granted the wisdom of ages as the keepers of our traditions in communication with nature and the natural order of the world would see Nuwada made whole again as all things are placed upon the throne of Tara. If he be the rightful king, the stone of fall beyond will sing. Nuwada took his seat at the throne and as if on cue there came a massive song as if a horn blasting gently from outside. Everyone there turned to the sound, a pleasant thing rising into the air. Eventually the song became as plain as birdsong, barely a registered hum. Agma took the spear off the wall above him, raising it into the air. Hail Nuwada of the Silver Hand, King of the Tuatha Dé Danann. The host of the Tuatha Dé Danann gave out a cry repeating his words, and then Nuwada stood again. We must rebuild our court, but before we do so, Dagda, I ask you to remove your harp's power over Brez. The druid removed his hand from the harp and set it to his belt. The former king rose, looking no less noble than before, but his face was afire with anger. You braggarts, one and all, I protected you when the Fomorians would have stripped the marrow from your bones. I let you keep what food you could when they wanted more and more and more. Yes. I benefited, but I protected you. I know the secrets of farming, but did you ever listen to me? Did you ever obey my commands? You are an unthankful folk who deny me my hospitality. Lou could not hold his tongue as much as it pained him to even speak. Your hospitality is worth less than a Fomorian blade, Mikalothan. Brez was quick in his turn, ready to bring a fist down upon Lou before Aramid rose from tending to Lou. She wore no anger in her face, merely a stare at the fallen king. Enough that Brez halted his hatred and stood there, rethinking his next step. Nawada spoke before he could. We grant you clemency to leave our lands, Brez Mechalothan, but you are not welcomed here. You defile the memory of your mother, whose marriage to your father was meant to represent a peaceful solution to the Fomorian problem. I henceforth exile you, and grant you safe passage from our lands as long as no harm comes to any of the children of Danu. From our ranks, you are no longer of our blood. Be gone. Brez shook his head. He is just like me, your lordship. I was a marriage of peace. Lu was a product of a vengeful dalliance from a rake and a princess. He is half Fomorian, like me, yet you give him the hospitality of your protection? Lu spoke for himself again. My mother has more nobility to her than the entirety of your kin, Brez. This blood I bleed is Irish blood, loyal to the sovereign queens and descended from the goddess Danu herself. My mother was Fomorian, but she was more Irish than you will ever be. Go to your kin. Beg their help. Brez nodded to them. He will hear of you, son of Kian. Baller will know of your existence. The crowd began to understand then who Lu was in that moment. A fearful murmur rose up among them. The threat, for it was a threat, was the last thing Brez said. He reached to the ground and lifted a spear. And though that gave a rise in tension, Brez did not use it to strike at the king, at anyone. 
Instead, he simply walked away out of the hall. Beside Bridget, Ruidin went to join his father. The queen held him back by his shirt as the boy struggled, whining, longing to be with his father. This pained the queen, who said nothing as the boy struggled. Nuada spoke to him softly, and Ruidin stopped, tearfully watching his father go. Nuada rose then, the usurper gone. The stone of fall has spoken. Tomorrow we begin reforming the bonds of our people. I will name the Dagda my chief druid and Ogma my champion. The other seats at Tara must be filled again, and I ask that every house present candidates for each position as they see fit for me to consider their positionality. Go forth from here and spread the news. We prosper once more, children of Danu. The people began to make for the door, many of them cheering, crying, looking. At Lou, they gave fearful glances, the truth of his parentage at last revealed. It mattered little to him. A weight had been taken off his shoulders and destiny had been done. Nawada set once more at Tara and the Stone of Fall had sung for him. There was little else to be said. Aramid and Mick helped him to his feet, Aramid speaking. Come, nephew. I'll get you set up at one of Grandfather's homes here in Tara, and you can prepare to present yourself to the court. And do not think I have forgotten what you've asked of me, the speed you requested. I will find a way, rest assured, while I take care of you. Lou did not resist, and the fog of the bomb affecting him made the many faces in the crowd a blurring pot, making every one seem like the last, yet nothing at all like them. As they exited the palace, one face in particular came into view. Gavita, sweating, moving against the crowd of cheers. What did I miss? Goddessy is written, researched, and produced by Greg Wright. Additional writing and editing by Sidney Yeager, who has not yet labeled me False King. Yet. Music by Scott Buckley, whose album Monomyth features heavily into this episode, as it does many. He can be found at www.scottbuckley.com.au. Like what you hear? Instead of naming me High King of the Tuatha Anon, you can check us out on social media at The Goddessy Podcast. Drop a line, say hi, play a harp that compels others to do your bidding. Whatever's cool these days. If you want to support the show further and get cool benefits like early access and behind-the-scenes info, check us out on Patreon. That would be super cool of you. Goddessy updates every Monday. See you then.